Welcome to Parallax by Anka Kalra, a podcast produced by Radcliffe Cardiology to bring you a new angle of all things cardiology and the best from the US Cardiology Review. Published every second Monday, Anka Kalra, MD, interventional cardiologist at the Cleveland Clinic in Ohio, USA, speaks with legendary cardiologists, reviews late-breaking trials and interviews authors of our latest and best US cardiology review articles. We call them hashtag audio articles. Parallax is the effect whereby the position or direction of an object appears to differ when viewed from different positions. So this podcast is your fix of reliable updates on all things cardiology by someone from a non-traditional background who is always looking at the industry from a new angle. Now, here's your host, Anka Kalra, MD. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Parallax. Um, this is uh, another special episode for me. I've been trying to... Um get him on the show. It's been over a month, uh, you know, um, because of, you know, his schedule and my schedule, it's been a little challenging, but, you know, nonetheless, here we are now. And um, I'm very happy that we've both been able to, you know, make time for this um, episode and, and what I feel will be an incredible episode. Um, so without much further ado, um, I have with me on the show, um, Dr. Chuck Simonton. And uh, Dr. Simonton is the Vice President of uh, Global Medical Affairs and Chief Medical Officer at Abiomed. Um, Chuck, welcome on the show, and thank you so much for making the time. Thanks, Anchor. I'm happy to be here. Um, yes, yeah, so, you know, let's uh, begin by uh, just discussing a little bit about, uh, you know, early influences in, in life for you. You know, childhood, early adulthood, what led you into a path in medicine? And then we're going to talk about, uh, you know, training. In, in internal medicine and then general cardiology and then interventional cardiology. But why don't we start with, you know, early influences in life? Sure. I think everybody has a story to tell in this regard as to how they ended up in medicine. And we all somehow end up here through oftentimes very different paths. Uh, mine was a little unusual in that a lot of kids go to college not knowing what they want to do. I knew uh, from the very beginning as a freshman at UNC Chapel Hill that I wanted to be a physician. And the influence probably came mostly from a combination of my father and some of my, my friend's dads growing up. So my father was a Methodist minister. And at that time, the Methodist Church in North Carolina moved me around about every five years. And so um, I had to make new friends every five years. But my dad, uh, which was a socializing, I think, um, influence on me growing up. But my dad also included me in a lot of things like hospital visits where he would sit at the bedside of uh, some of his um, some of his uh, parishioners who were suffering from life-threatening illness or were dying. Uh, and then I also heard, saw him uh, as a leader. And I think the combination of that compassion for people and his leadership uh, was part of the inspiration. Uh, and then I had uh, one of my best friends in high school. His father was a physician, and I loved hanging out, out of his house and getting to know his dad. And I always liked science. I mean, I was kind of a science and math nerd early on. So I thought, okay, I like science and math, but also like people. Uh, and I want to be around people. So I don't think I want to be a PhD researcher. I think I'd like to combine science with people, and medicine seems like the way to go. And that's, so that's kind of... Uh, I guess the childhood growing up influences that got me there. And I knew pretty well by the time I started 
as a freshman at UNC that I wanted to, to be a doctor and start becoming pre-med and, and heading uh, to medical school. And then I just had some, very fortunate to have some very, um, very good mentors, even in college. So I was, uh, of course, as a minister, I had to go on uh, work study to make money to uh, pay my tuition and room and board. And uh, so I started working in the research lab of uh, a cardiologist who ran the cardiology division at UNC Chapel Hill, Ellis Roulette. And Ellis uh, was widely known for his work in muscle mechanics. So I learned how to hang papillary muscles, rabbit papillary muscles, and do contractility experiments even as an undergraduate in college. Um, and also my I guess my other role model there was a professor that I looked up to in analytical chemistry. I was a chemistry major. And those two individuals really inspired me outside of just the usual classwork uh, in, uh, at UNC uh, to think bigger and do other things. And Ellis was a Harvard Medical School graduate uh, back in the 1950s. And when I got ready to apply to med school, he said, you know, you've done really well here at Carolina. I think you should consider applying to a lot of good med schools. And I think between his letter and, and Maurice Bercy, who was my analytical chemistry professor, who I did a lot of lab work with as well. Um, those letters, plus I guess some, some decent grades, I was able to get into Harvard Medical School. And that, I think, as a North Carolina boy, that's when my world exploded. Uh, that's when I met people from all over the world, actually, in the Harvard community, which changed the way I thought about the world. and. Uh, and uh, the way I thought about uh, medicine and science. So there you have it in the early years. Um, and then after uh, medical school, ended up matching for residency at UCSF and was University of California, San Francisco program, Moffitt Hospital was a fantastic program at the time. Uh, there were some people, some guys out there that I didn't know they were all gonna become who they became, but uh, names like Eric Topol and Rob Taylor, who were both a couple of years ahead of me in the program, were already there. Uh, the guy who was a, a year or two ahead of me at Harvard Medical School there, a guy named Paul Yock, um, who, as you know, invented the, the Yock patents for rapid exchange balloon angioplasty catheters in the 1990s, and then went on to do a lot of work in intravascular ultrasound and, and, and founded the School of Biodesign at Stanford, was there at the time. He said, Chuck, you got to come out here. This place is great. So I ended up at UCSF. And, but those kinds of colleagues um, uh, paving the way and teaching me uh, along the way, including also Dean Kariakis, as many people know Dean, of course, uh, Cincinnati now with the uh, Lender Foundation, who's running clinical trials for years and editor of circulation. These are the kind of people that uh, I was fortunate enough to get to work with. And that group, after leaving that, I came back to Duke for cardiology fellowship, and that's when angioplasty was really hitting. This was uh, in the mid to late 80s. Uh, and through Richard Stack and Harry Phillips and the team at, at Duke got really interested in, in angioplasty. I thought I was going to be a heart failure doc. Actually, my first year at Duke, I did a bunch of heart failure research. And then all the stuff started happening over at Duke, Maine uh, uh, in the cath lab. And I just had to get in there. And, and angioplasty was just too attractive to be able to, to actually uh, be, uh, you know, actually fix people, do something that would make a difference immediately. Uh, that immediate gratification of taking people with acute MI at that time. We were even doing acute MI angioplasty in the early years at Duke, flying people in on the helicopter. And all we had was a balloon catheter at the time. This was 1989, 1990. Um, 
and then uh, and then beginning you know clinical studies in uh, in angioplasty and then rotational atherectomy, directional atherectomy, extramural laser. These things all happened before we had a stent. Uh, and then finally, of course, the FDA approval of the Palmer-Shatt stent which was the first really, truly deliverable uh, stent for primary angioplasty in 1995 in the U.S. And then the multi-link stent came quickly behind it and took market share, most of the market share uh, in 1998 in the U.S. Um, uh, and then, as you know, that, that was the beginning of really the, the explosion of interventional cardiology with drug-eluting stents in the early 2000s. And at that point, I had left Duke and, and moved to Charlotte and joined a large group called the Sanger Clinic. This was in 1989 by the time I was there. And started the interventional program there and when all we had was a balloon um, when I left Duke. Um, and then lived through all the clinical trials, started the research group there, the clinical trials group. From all the stuff I'd learned from Rob Califf and Dan Mark and the guys at, at Duke who taught me about clinical, clinical research, clinical trials and epidemiology, and just uh, had a great time taking a high volume clinic like the Sanger Clinic uh, that did not have a lot of clinical research yet and turning it in, turning, using that patient population to really learn uh, and enroll in clinical trials. And, uh, and just over 20 years building that program and doing a regional meeting every year in June, I started a meeting called Advanced uh, Cardiovascular Intervention Meeting, ACI meeting, which happened every June in Hilton Head, South Carolina. We had all the major international faculty come through there. Week-long uh, meeting at Complex Coronary and Purple Intervention. And then, of course, I was doing live cases out of Charlotte for GCT and other meetings. And after doing that and doing a lot of work with industry over the years, um, uh, a guy named John Chapek contacted me and we had lunch at one TCT and he said, Chuck, it looks like Guidant, which is one of the most successful angioplasty companies, as you may remember in the late 90s, uh, early 2000s, it looked like it was going to be acquired. They kind of missed the drug-eluting stent first wave that Boston Scientific and Fortis had captured, but they had a really fast follower stent called the Zion stent that was going to come to market in 2008 and they needed a chief medical officer. Um, and uh, guided uh, HPASTI business was acquired by Abbott, and that's what created Abbott Vascular. So I became the first uh, chief medical officer for Abbott Vascular uh, in 2008 um, and became an industry guy. Yeah, so no, well, you know, it's um, it, incredible pedigree and incredible background. And, you know, you're, <clears throat> I was listening to, uh, you know, your, um, your description of, um, childhood and, you know, early adulthood and, you know, some incredible influences from family and, uh, you know, then you, you, you brought on to medicine and, you know, those names are not, you know, those, those names are pretty heavy lifters in academic cardiovascular medicine, as we know, I mean, Bob Califf and Eric Topol and Dean Kariakis and, um, you know, th those are some of the names that you, you mentioned and, you know, we, and Dan Mark and, and, you know, we, they're, they're all still, you know, at uh, these, uh, you know, academic medical institutions. I mean, we know, um, you know, Dr. Califf was the former FDA commissioner. Um, Dr. Topol is at Scripps, was at the Cleveland Clinic before, you know, he, he moved uh, he moved to Scripps. And then Dr. Mark, Dan Mark, I believe is, is still at Duke. Um, but, you know, just if you can just, because, you know, a lot of our audience are early career cardiologists and, and maybe fellows in training or residents and 
maybe you can, you know, tell us a little bit more about how it was to work with, you know, these luminaries, you know, for example, you know, Dean Kariakis or Dan Mark or, you know, even Eric Topol, Bob Califf. How how was it as a as a fellow, because you were a fellow in Duke, uh, so maybe your interactions with, you know, Bob and Dan happened when you were at Duke. How, uh, so, you know, maybe as a fellow, how, how was it, were they approachable? You know, were, you know, what were some of the conversations you had? What were some of the, you know, uh, like, yeah, I think you know, moments the, that you still remember young, when you reminisce your time at Duke? Uh, either coming up in whatever field, uh, but since we're talking about cardiology, whether it's interventional cardiology or heart failure or a structural heart uh, cardiologist, because um, we're mainly talking about cardiology, but these comments would apply to almost any fellowship or any early career experience. My advice would be to be very uh, observant of who the leaders are in the institutions where you train. Uh, faculty that are forward-looking, uh, cutting-edge, um, presenting at the big meetings, um, doing research that results in late-breaking clinical trial uh, presentations at the big meeting. That's who you want to attach your, your boat to. And uh, Duke was fairly rich with that uh, when I was a fellow there in the late 80s um, because it was uh, a lot was happening in cardiology. Interventional cardiology didn't even really, there were no interventional cardiology fellowships back then. It was just cardiologists doing cardiology fellowships that were then learning in the cath lab how to do balloon angioplasty uh, and being a part of the clinical data that was being developed at the time to justify what we were doing as opposed to bypass surgery. Um, and particularly for acute MI at the time, Duke became a big center. We had two helicopters going around the clock 24-7, bringing patients in with acute MI from the rural areas of North Carolina who at that time were getting streptokinase, and we were doing emergency balloon angioplasty, and ultimately that changed, of course, to TPA. Uh, and then we got into all of the, the big studies. Uh, subsequently, and this is after I left Duke and got to, down to Charlotte to the Sanger Clinic when the study started on STEMI like PAMI and stent PAMI, uh, which actually resulted in TIMI2B, which actually resulted in the, the studies that defined primary angioplasty as superior to thrombolytic therapy for uh, acute myocardial infarction. Today, I'm sure you, young folks listening now are going, well, obviously, primary angioplasty is better than giving TPA, but at the time, uh, that was totally unknown, and there were lots of proponents that you had to get a thrombolytic into the patient. You couldn't delay doing that for two hours, three hours for a helicopter transport or something and not give the patient any lytics and just wait to open it up with a balloon. Uh, but uh, Bill O'Neill uh, in uh, Detroit and a guy named Bruce Brody in Greensboro had very good single center registry showing that their patients were doing terrific. They were avoiding intracranial hemorrhage and other bleeding uh, complications occurring through the thrombolytics and the patient's outcomes were great. And that's what was, those were the pilots that stimulated the randomized trials to follow on primary angioplasty and stenting once stents came around versus uh, thrombolytics. So I would, I would say, I guess that story is about uh, hitching your wagon or your boat to uh, to the leaders that you are working with. For me at Duke, it was Richard Stack and Rob Caleb 
uh, and Harry Phillips, who was more of the private practice guy, was really building the practice and teaching me how to talk to referring physicians and how to encourage referrals um, so you could build the practice. That's what Harry did well. Richard was the research guy. Richard Stack was doing a ton of research on stent designs in the animal lab and then trying to do translational. We didn't even call it translational research back then, but that's what we were doing. Um, with research going on in conjunction with companies like ACS, which became guided, guided and had a lot of the, the very successful early bare metal stents in the late uh, 90s that we were doing research on, stent design, stent deliverability um, uh, throughout the early uh, 1990s. So I think that's what I would say, Anchor, just uh, whatever institution you're at, if you're at a good program, every program has a leader and every program has people who are cutting edge. If they're not, I would suggest you try to get in, try to change programs, try to get into a program where you see uh, leaders, uh, forward-looking thinkers, and, uh, people doing clinical research or uh, product development in conjunction with industry engineers um, to get where those people are because uh, they're going to teach you how to think independently, how to uh, get out of some of the conservative ways that we we tend to get comfortable with and always be challenging yourself and improving. Yes, no, you know, excellent points. And, you know, I'm sure some of the residents or fellows in training or, you know, even early career interventionists like myself or listening are, you know, gaining a lot of insights from your experience and, you know, from what you've lived through. Um, I, I want to touch base a little bit on your, um, you know, time spent at Sanger Clinic, because, you know, I, I think uh, when you were uh, you know, talking about your experience at Sanger Clinic, I, I picked up on it because when I came, um, came in through to the Cleveland Clinic Health System, I started out at uh, Akron General, which is, uh, you know, one of the regional hospitals for Cleveland Clinic. And, you know, we're doing, uh, you know, obviously there's a busy STEMI program and, you know, um, I was helping my, my colleague uh, to develop a structural heart program, you know, which he's leading, uh, but also, you know, entrusted with the responsibility of, uh, you know, starting a clinical research enterprise um, at at one of the clinics, regional hospitals. And, you know, so for me, and I'm sure there are many like me who are in, in similar uh, shoes or, you know, in the, at, at the same stage in their career right now is, you know, trying to start a clinical research program, which is, uh, which is vibrant, which is active in, in a place which is busy clinically, but has not really forayed into a clinical research. So, uh, you know, and your, uh, I mean, you, you've, you sort of had, uh, you've had a myriad of experiences, very rich ones, which have obviously translated into who you are today. But, you know, I think for someone like myself, and I'm sure there are many like me in their early career stage, who want to be, you know, good clinicians, but also really good clinician scientists. You know, what would be some of the, you know, both pitfalls, challenges, and then also advantages uh, of a place, you know, which is busy clinically, but hasn't really fallen into, into research and is looking for a leader or is looking for a person who can, who can fit into that role yeah, and, you know, really get that going. What would be some of your insights? I can just tell you kind of how I, how I got started uh, when I moved down to the Sanger Clinic, as you mentioned. So I left a highly sophisticated, well-developed clinical research institution like Duke, uh, where we had clinical research nurses, we had physician assistants assigned to, to um, screening and enrolling patients, a, a real uh, strong infrastructure. 
down to the Sanger Clinic, which is as you, as you described where you were. The Sanger Clinic was very, very busy clinically, doing great work. And actually, uh, preceding me, there were several uh, physicians there that had left uh, very high-ranking faculty positions uh, where they were. As a matter of fact, uh, John Gallagher had been there for a couple of years. John Gallagher is basically the guy who who uh, published all the early work on mapping, mapping WPW uh, for WPW ablation procedures and uh, had a tenured faculty position at Duke and decided he wanted to be more independent and left and, and had been at the Sanger Clinic for a number of years before I came. So that was the caliber of physicians in this group. Um, and uh, other than John, though, there wasn't much clinical research or innovation going on on the interventional side because it was just starting. I mean, this is the late 80s. Balloon angioplasty was just kind of starting to catch on uh, outside of the academic places that were early on. Um, and uh, they were doing angioplasty at, at the Sanger Clinic, but not really involved in trials. So the way you get started, the way I got started, I'd recommend if you are at a place that is not doing this yet, is to uh, approach uh, large companies like Abbott, Medtronic, Boston Scientific, Abiumed, um, and, and others. Um, uh, Portis with Cardinal. Uh, uh, and, you know, there's a, a, a number of them that are currently developing products and wanting to enroll patients. And uh, the first step is to get involved in a registry. Uh, you're not going to all of a sudden be invited to start enrolling patients in a pivotal randomized trial uh, by a company that's trying to get a device approved. That's a pretty high level of clinical trial participation. So start off by saying, hey, look, I've got a lot of ST elevation in my patients that come in here, all right? I do a lot of high-risk uh, PCI. We're very skilled, and we like to get involved in some studies and offer up the um, opportunity to contribute patients to a registry, either a, either a post-approval registry or uh, any other kind of registries that the companies are trying to do. Because they will come in, they'll do a, a, a visit and say, well, what clinical trial infrastructure do you have? And you got to start somewhere. You can say, well, we have a nurse that works in our that works here who's had clinical trial experience before at another institution, and we could get her started. And we could uh, start with something simple like a uh, post-approval registry. And then what you do is you prove yourself by enrolling a lot of patients in that, because companies need, like to enroll fast, and they like to go to the hospitals that can enroll a lot of patients quickly with high quality. And that gets you on the map. They go, wow, okay, boy, this guy, this, this man or woman, this physician, is in a great place, uh, smart, has uh, one or two good clinical research nurses, did a great job in this first registry. Let's step it up and, and let's see if they can get involved in some more of our studies. And then other companies find out about that too, not just the company you start with. This is a very small community. The word will get out that you can enroll patients in, the cat, in certain categories where you're strong, the kinds of patients that you have. Uh, but start at the registry level. You can reach out to a big the big companies, find out what they're doing, um, and get in with a simple type of uh, participation like a registry, and then work your way up. But volume's important, and enroll and speed of enrollment's important, but also obviously quality because all these studies are audited by the FDA, or most of them are. Yeah, no, those are uh, you know great insights, and you know I think. Um, 
you know, a good uh, good segue into my next question. So, you know, thank you for vividly describing the process of, you know, getting started at a place which, you know, is clinically busy and is wanting to get feet wet in, in clinical research. I think those are incredible insights from someone like yourself. But, you know, what I was saying initially was that this was a great segue into my next question, which is, um, you know, so from Sanger Clinic, uh, which is where you were, was that your last stop? Was that your last, you know, your your initial, um, I think, appointment out of fellowship? And, you know, that's where you were. Uh, I mean, you, you you were very successful in that role. Um, and then was that was that then the last stop before you forwarded into industry? You know, because you said it was 2008, I believe. How, when did that, so that, so that transition occurred, how far advanced into your clinical practice? Like how many years out of fellowship and how many years were you practicing in, so in that been role before you decided to move on to industry? 20 years, just under 20 years when I made the decision. Um, and it came at a time when, you know, I had been, done so much uh, clinical research and a lot of education and a lot, all of that, most of that, of course, is sponsored by industry. It also consulted with companies on device development. They'd come in and say, okay, we're working on a certain stent design, or we're working on a certain atherectomy, you know, a, a change in, in the rotational atherectomy cutter delivery system or something. And I would do a lot of that kind of consulting and advisory boards with industry. And I liked industry. I liked the sales organization. I liked um, how, you know, how we advance in interventional cardiology is almost entirely due to relationships we have with industry. So despite what a lot of people say out there, um, some of the, uh, I guess, more academic uh, pundits about how there are these physician industry conflicts of interest and how we treat our patients, the fact of the matter is we don't need less uh, interaction between physicians and industry. We need more. Because the more industry talks to physicians, the better the products are that they develop, um, and the more physicians can influence healthcare. Now, there's not there's only so much money coming from the NIH, uh, which I guess would be considered fully, totally academically independent, non-industry, quote-unquote, tainted uh, research uh, funding, and that's for pretty early studies and very uh, experimental types of. Of, of programs or really big clinical trials like like uh, Courage or like the Ischemia trial, um, the big ones that NIH tends to fund um, that are huge clinical questions or they're very early experimental types of studies. But for the most part, if you look at interventional cardiology, the tools that we have, everything from the balloon, balloon angioplasty to stents to caver to the microclip to the left atrial tendon occlusion devices, ASD occluders, PFO occluders, um, uh, all the electrophysiology equipment that's used for mapping and ablation, all of that is developed through industry research uh, and physicians being very close on advisory boards, helping industry understand what the needs are. So we need even more of that. Um, the FDA is very interested in accelerating innovation in the U.S. and and they're looking for ways to do that uh, safely. And so, you know, now the early feasibility study program is opened up in the U.S. where a company can do its first in man patient. For instance, now uh, we didn't finish my personal story that I left Abbott and I'm now the CMO at Abiumed, 
but Abiumed has a new uh, pump, a uh, new uh, pump for high-risk supported PCI that will be uh, nine French in, in diameter, so a much smaller French than any other pump on the market. Uh, and they're going to do their first in man, not in Europe, not in South America, like it has been done by so many companies in the past, including Abiumed and Abbott and all of them. But it's going to happen right here in the U.S. The first patient will be treated uh, in the world here in the U.S. before the end of the year because the company is committed to the, the promise of the FDA that they uh, want to encourage first-in-man work in the U.S. so that they can understand the technology better here uh, under their own visibility as opposed to research done outside the country. Um, so it's it's moving, and, and my transition to industry came fully from an inspiration that doctors need to be closer to industry. And the kind of doctors that should be working in these kinds of roles, like I had at Abbott and now at Abiumed, are physicians who actually do the procedure and did a lot of them and struggled with it and uh, you know shed blood with our colleagues in the lab uh, taking care of these patients with STEMI and acute coronary syndrome and complex PCIs uh, and helping to improve lives, save lives and improve the quality of life. Uh, and you have to have been in there, in there actively involved as a technician, uh, interventional cardiologist doing a lot to really be able to understand what the needs are. Because now in this role, it's not my mind, it's not my ideas. I'm, I'm not telling the company what they should do. I'm just one voice. And I've been around a lot and I've had a lot of experience, but I'm now the ears of the company to all of the opinions from, from experts around the world uh, in terms of what the direction of the company, this company, and when I was with Abbott Vascular, Abbott Vascular, the direction they should take in product development and clinical trials. Um, and that's what you got to do. This role is all about uh, being a good listener, assimilating all the opinions you get from the smartest people you know in the world in this field, and helping the company make the right decisions. Yes, you know. So, so thanks again for um, uh, for sharing that that piece of advice. Uh, you you mentioned um, something in the end, which I'm going to mirror, just because I think it's extremely important to say it again. And this, these are quotes from the, uh, from the Dalai Lama, you know, so the, the Dalai Lama has said that, uh, you know, most of us, you know, if you're just talking, we were basically repeating what we already know, but if we need to learn something, we need to, we need to listen. Uh, so I think, I think that's, that's, that's great advice. I think it's extremely important to, to you know, uh, to be, to be a good listener for you to be a good leader, uh, which is, which is exactly what you exemplify and what you just shared with us. So, you know, now into your role um, in, in Abiomed, you, you know, you recently joined Abiomed uh, and you joined at a time where, you know, there are conflicting data on the efficacy of the device, right? I mean, uh, the, the papers published in, in JAMA and Circulation, and, you know, maybe you can comment on those. Um, uh, but, you know, the device, um, you know, has been used widely and, you know, I, I have used the device as well. Um, what do you think are the direction for, uh, or directions, if you will, for patients uh, who present, you know, in acute myocardial infarction and are in cardiogenic shock? So, you know, the mortality from cardiogenic shock remains at a staggering 50%, despite all the advances in the last 40 years in, in uh, you know, coronary angioplasty and, and PCI and, and interventional cardiology. This is one um, 
menacing area where we really haven't made any significant dent when it comes to mortality or, you know, even, you know, clinical, you know, improvement in clinical outcomes. So, uh, and, you know, I think, uh, so Abiumet has, has been at the forefront, you know, for this field, you know, and in, in supporting the left ventricle for either high-risk PCR and cardiogenic shock. So I think, you know, those are two, obviously, two different areas that I'm talking, two different subsets of patients. You know, one is elective high-risk PCI. You want to support the left ventricle when you're performing a complex procedure. And then the other one is a, a patient with acute coronary syndrome and in cardiogenic shock. And those are two different subsets of patients. I, I understand that. So what, what do you think are the next steps for, uh, you know, Abiumed's uh, Impella? Yeah, in advancing care question. in both of these and substance of patients. the reason that I'm in this role that I'm in, because when I left Abbott Vascular, I thought, well, now it's time at this stage of career to uh, uh, maybe, uh, you know, dial back a little bit, focus on helping a couple of companies by joining the boards of a couple of small companies and then doing some consulting. And Abiumet asked me if I would come in. Mike Minogue, who's the, the founder, CEO, and chairman, of the company that I've known for many years, found out I was, uh, you know, out and about and could uh, help. And so before I took this role as chief medical officer, I was uh, working a couple of days a week, just helping them with exactly what you're talking about. What is the next, uh, the next phase for this company to rise to the next level and actually go from being an adolescent company to a fully adult company and one of the big, big guys with the kinds of data that you need to support broad, you know, uh, a broad use and acceptance, like a class one indication for the Impella. And uh, they had already started to work on a study called Protect 4, which would be a single multi-center, adequately powered, multi-center prospective randomized trial in high-risk PCI, so non, non-emergent high-risk PCI uh, for Impella versus uh, any other standard of care that that people consider, which is either not using any support or you could uh, choose to use a balloon pump, whatever your other option uh, would be if you were treating that uh, the patient. And so uh, that was actually one of the real hooks that got me interested in where this company is going. And then they also publicly announced they want to do the same type of uh, huge uh, international randomized trial in cardiogenic shock, AMI with shock. So the two categories you talked about, companies committing to two major prospective multi-center randomized trials that will achieve a class one indication if positive for both of those uh, groups of patients. So, um, you know, I'm like anybody who's kind of been a leader or been doing research in this field, who wouldn't want to work uh, with a company that's spending that kind of money, making that kind of investment to do the right thing to, to come forward with the highest level of evidence possible for its technology. And also, uh, quite frankly, take the risk of doing a large trial. I mean, Abiumet already has FDA indications for both of those categories, but they know that to, to make the therapy available to more and more patients who uh, they feel and the people who have been using Impella a lot feel deserve it, we've got, we've got to do the randomized trial. Um, and a good example for why is microclip. So when I was at Abbott Vascular, I conducted or um, moderated Abbott Vascular's presentation to the FDA panel to get the microclip approved for a very narrow group uh, indication of prohibitive surgical risk patients with primary degenerative microregurgitation. 
Uh, even though we had really good data for secondary MR or functional mitral regurgitation at the time of panel, the FDA would not give us the indication for that and felt that a randomized trial was needed. At that time, MitralClip was already being used uh, in, in, in the um, continued access studies, uh, not under an approved indication, but continued access studies by a lot of centers. Uh, and also, we were approved in Europe, and we had a ton of data from Europe that showed that MitralClip was working extremely well for these patients with functional MR, uh, just like they were for patients that have primary degenerative MR. Uh, but the heart failure community, FDA, everybody wanted a randomized trial. So why am I using this as an example? Um, because at the time, there were many people doing MitralClip who already believed it was the right thing to do for these patients. Right now, with Impella, there are tons of centers, thousand centers uh, out there that already believe that Impella is the right thing to do for their high-risk PCI patients or their AMI shock patients, two categories we mentioned. But we're going to need to go through this phase of doing the randomized trial like we did with COAP. So for secondary or functional MR, we did uh, the study called COAP, which I helped design along with Greg Stone, uh, Michael Mack, and Bill Abraham. Uh, and that study took three and a half, four years to enroll. It was a tremendous burden, uh, not burden, but challenge uh, of a clinical trial, but it turned out to be probably the most positive and significant clinical trial in the history of interventional cardiology with primary endpoint, not only a primary endpoint being highly statistically positive, but also a mortality benefit and every single pre-specified secondary endpoint was positive. We've never had a trial like it or sent, uh, like COAP before or since with that type of outcome. And it just shows you that the, the tediousness and the, the amount of attention to detail that went into that trial with people having a lot of experience in doing microclip um, and strict enrollment criteria on patients had to fail guideline directed medical therapy or GDM2. And if they came back and their MR was less on GDM2, they could not be enrolled. And so the right kinds of patients got in with the right mix of LV dysfunction and MR so that we could achieve a primary, uh, a positive primary endpoint for the benefit of, of MitraClip. And that's what's going to happen with Impella. And that's why when, when Mike asked me to take on the role of chief medical officer, even though I didn't know I'd be all back in again, like I was at Abbott Vascular, I was ready to, after getting my wife's consent, <laughs> To go all in again, I was uh, I was ready to That's go back in because this is uh, an amazing uh, amazing investment, and to do a trial like this where people already believe there's already FDA indication, people already feel that's the right thing to do, but we need the the big randomized trials to move forward. Yeah, no. So, uh, I mean, ex excellent story about the co-ops. You know, I, I would just go on to say that it's not only the arguably the one of the strongest evidences that interventional cardiology community has produced. It's also one of the strongest trials in in heart failure. Like, you know, I, I consider it. I, I equally consider it as a heart failure trial because, you know, those those patients were on excellent background guideline directed medical therapy, including angiotensin neprilysin inhibitors, and you know, the, the trial showed a twenty percent you know, relative risk reduction on top of the very strong, you know, medical, you know, medical therapy arm, you know, which, which was just, uh, which was phenomenal. And, you know, like you said, you know, uh, 
there were people using it, but there was a lot of clinical equipoise. And, you know, anytime there's clinical equipoise, there's ground for debate. And <clears throat> then you have the naysayers and there's always this tug of war. And, uh, you know, that's, that's not good for science. It's not good for patients. You know, that's, that's, that's who we work for. You know, we, our only goal is, is to take care of the patient in front of us and, and deliver the best, the best care possible. And, and I think, uh, you know, so, so thanks to you and it's, it's a welcome move by Abiomet to actually invest the kind of money and the kind of effort it will take to get these trials, uh, you know, underway and, and on board. So, you know, really, really happy that the company has moved in that direction and that you are at the helm leading this effort. You know, I couldn't be, couldn't be happier because, you know, uh, even though, you know, I, I have been, I'll be honest, you know, I, there are patients where I felt comfortable using it because I, I've, I've felt that the benefit outweighs the risk, but then there are those subset of patients where you really question, does it really, does it really, does the, do the benefits really outweigh the risk and the risks that I'm talking about include, you know, like, you know, large bore access and, you know, bleeding risk, which of course, within, with the nine French system that you've mentioned is going to certainly mitigate that risk. And, you know, in interventional cardiology, we're not, not talking about net adverse clinical events, which is becoming our, our leading co-primary endpoint for a lot of these trials. Um, so, you know, I, I think with, with all the steps that you are taking and Abiumet yeah, is taking, uh, I think the, the Andrew, future is just, very exciting. Uh, jump in for a second. I think the other thing that I impressed with this company, and hopefully they can, uh, can show they can do it as well, is I think a lot of us would consider uh, Edwards Life Sciences to be uh, one of the best examples of a company, a publicly traded company that despite the pressures of Wall Street was able to invest both in an incredible series of robust clinical trials, partner one, partner two, partner three, but at the same time to invest in technology and with every year, basically almost every year coming out with a new sapien valve. Um, and it's hard to do both. Um, most of the companies out there, and they'll tell you that with your, you've got quarterly earnings reports um, and you've got a P&L that something gets traded off. It's hard to spend in both areas the way you'd like it, both in technology pipeline and also in clinical evidence for your approved devices. Uh, but I think Abiumed um, is doing that as good as I've seen in any company right now is to try to reduce those complications you mentioned. The nine French pump will start its first in man this year. There's also, uh, the, we call it breaking the large bore, uh, the small bore barrier um, is an expandable sheath uh, that will hit for the, the Impella 2.5 uh, this year and then next year, the Impella CP, which is a sheet that's nine French, true nine French, and expandable for delivery of the pump, which is, you know, for the CP is 14 French, but then uh, recoils back down. It's woven nitinol design that recoils back down to nine French. So you more or less bougie the arteriotomy rather than force a big 14 French uh, sheath, which stays in and keeps the hole at 14 French the whole time. So we'll see where that goes. It's a novel concept, but. Uh, they're investing in in that type of uh, technology uh, to try to get at what you what you said the risk benefit uh, of uh, of using the device in patients who may need it. Yeah, no, excellent. Um, you know, again, you know, so um, any any closing remarks, and you know, really thank you for your generosity and for your time. You know, you're one of the luminaries I actually look up to 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 emulate. You know, for for my career trajectory, I I don't know if I'll ever be able to do that, but you know, certainly a role model for me personally. But 
Any any closing remarks well, for the podcast kind, and or, or for you know, our I, conversation? Um, you just kind of do what what you can in this life, along work and family, and and try to balance it. I probably should say it. I, most of us probably don't have in our field the best work life balance, but you keep working at it. Um, but I appreciate all the comments, and I hope that this has been helpful. I I uh, want to be as transparent and as accessible as possible as a CMO. A lot of people say, oh, I can't, you know, get the email of CMO of a company uh, uh, for advice or whatever. But I, to the listeners here, just know that um, I've been, tried to be as accessible as possible throughout my career for positions coming up, either junior partners when I was at the Sanger Clinic um, or in industry. So uh, please reach out if you have a need and there's, uh, I can help maybe direct, direct folks uh, to programs where they would maybe find they match up better or have more opportunity. Um, but I'd encourage you to, to hit your wagon to the smartest people you know. Don't be intimidated by smart people. Be attracted by them and listen and hit your wagon and do research with them and learn from them uh, if this is what you want to do. And if clinical research is not your thing, it, uh, this happens to be, have been my thing, of course, in pushing the field forward. If you just want to be a really good clinician, again, find the best clinician you know. Uh, and if you're not in a place where you feel like you've got that kind of mentorship or leadership, then I think you should find a place that does. Um, and always keep, uh, keep searching for the best, the best leaders and mentors that you can find in your career, uh, because the last comment I'll leave you with is, is that's what will bring you uh, success and fulfillment in what you do is being open to others' ideas and finding good mentors. So I'll leave you with that. Yeah, no, excellent, excellent closing remarks. And it, this is really, I, I think, one of the one of the best episodes I've recorded. So thank you for your sound bites and thank you for your wisdom. And thank you for all the advice. I'm, I'm sure it's going to be well received by a lot yeah, of us. It's been a pleasure. Thanks, thanks again for your generosity okay, of time. Bye-bye. Thank you. Bye bye. Dear cardiologists, we want to make this podcast about you and for you. So please email us your critical thoughts, comments and questions at podcast at radcliffe-group.com and visit uscjournal.com for more information. You can also follow us on Twitter, LinkedIn, Facebook and Instagram at Radcliffe Cardiology for daily updates. Join thousands of cardiologists and become a Radcliffian by registering to radcliffecardiology.com. You will receive regular newsletters and gain access to hundreds of expert interviews, educational webinars, clinical cases, and peer-reviewed articles from our six medical review journals on general cardiology, interventional cardiology, arrhythmia and electrophysiology, cardiac failure, and vascular and endovascular surgery. Thank you.